that you dealt and uh, sometimes uh, kids need a little assistance with something and again you know the best thing I can do is give them advice and let them know that they're thought of and well cared for and loved Welcome to the third season of the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. It is my pleasure to be sitting here in Oakland, California (laughs) with my dear friend, Vida Blue. So Vida, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. This is cool, Larry. Thanks so much. I'm flattered that you asked me to be on your show, man. You're one of my favorites also. Well, I appreciate that. So I actually want to start and go back to say 1959 to a 10-year-old Vida Blue growing up in Mansfield, Louisiana. And I know you've told me before that was a time your town was still segregated. Tell me about how that was growing up in the South during those times? Well, you're segregated as we, we stated there, but you're in your own little world. I had my friends, classmates, kids that I went to Sunday school with, and you don't know, at that point in time in my life, all I knew was this was my world, and it was, it was just one color, and that was okay. Man, like I said, I got hugs and kisses throughout the course of the week from mom, dad, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, friends. And life was good as far as I was concerned. I didn't know the difference of the haves and the have-nots. I thought we were the Rockefellers, man. <laughs> okay, the Kennedys at least. Yeah. Life was a great thing for me at that time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I recently wrote a novel that you were a part of. It was entitled Before Jackie, and I based one of the characters off you, and I named the character Doc Walker. But share with me the story you shared with me about Horace Dinkins and how you got enough money one summer to buy your first baseball club. Oh, yes. I told that story to my sisters again, and they said, you remember that too? I said, yeah. Well, my twin sisters, they're twins next second to me. I'm the oldest of of the six. These child two and three are my sisters Cheryl and Jean and we were teenagers at the time and I don't know where we got the idea from but we decided let's how are we gonna make some money you know you can't cut lawns I didn't have a lawn mower and all that stuff or rake leave that just it's summertime there are no leaves on the ground so we said let's go pick cotton and Mr. Horace Dinkins was our bus driver also on some land on the outskirts of our little town in Mansfield Louisiana he owned cotton fields. And Larry, you know where Bishop O'Dow School is from here? Sure. One cotton field goes that far, it oh seems like it when you're 12, 13 years old. And that's just on one side. Then you come back down that same row on the other side and you pick. Cotton has prickly like a berry does. So you just don't reach in there and grab. There's an art to doing that. But my sisters, Cheryl and Jean, and I picked cotton for a week. And the money we made from that, I wanted money that I made from that, 
I went to Sears and Roebuck, and they had what they used to call the catalog number, which is the Amazon number right now, yep. your order number. I ordered that, and Ted Williams was big with Sears and Roebuck at that time. He was there all world sports because he hunted and fished, and his name was on everything that Sears and Roebuck had. Bought her the first baseman's mitt because I wanted to play first base. I don't know who influenced me to want to play first base, but I want to be a first baseman. That was before I fell in love with Willie Mays and wanted to play center field. But Mr. Dinkins was also our bus driver. I used to bus from one side of town to the other side to, to Johnson Elementary. And I used to be the kid that when we get up to the railroad cross, I would pull a sign that says, stop. <laughs> I would fight and run from class to when the bell rang to be the first kid to get it. The kid that got the seat got to do that. And that was always a fun time. Yeah. Of course, there were like three. We crossed this one railroad track that ran through town. We crossed it like two or three different times. So I got to do that. That was my job, man. I took pride in that. But the picking the cotton was, was a thing that I did. And uh, bought my first baseball man from that. Yeah, and we're uh, dating ourselves because for kids who don't know the Sears catalog, that was something everybody looked forward to look through. Oh, absolutely. The the Amazon of its time. Yeah, absolutely. The summer catalog came out, spring and summer, then they'd have the winter and fall with the long sleeve stuff and the boots (laughs) and and the caps with the hoodies and with the ears. Yeah, it was something. And I, another story you told me when I was working on the book was the T-shirt league. Tell, oh, us, tell oh, us about that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, we decided we formed our own little team, you know, in the neighborhood. And we had a coach that decided to take us to the school yard and we would play organized ball. And, you know, you want to have a number and you got you got to have a number. And we didn't have no one to sponsor our uniforms. You know, no kid's dad worked in a bank or, or was on his own business so we could be Joe's ballers or something, or Mike's ballers, whoever. But anyway, some kind of way we figured out that how are we going to put numbers on it? You got to have a number. You just can't be a blank T-shirt. So we took T-shirts and we took shoe polish and let it dry. It, we put it on our T-shirts, and that I end up calling it the T-shirt league. Yeah, that's something. And you'd be amazed how creative we were at that time. And we took a doll head as our ball, and we take tacks and tack up our bats and stuff yeah. and electric anything, tape. Anything yeah, anything in it. Man, those were some good times, and I'm I'm glad that you asked me questions about those, and those will always be a part of my life, Larry. What number did you go with? You know, now this is crazy. I wanted to be number eight. There was a player. I used to watch the games, and I was impressed by this guy named Johnny Callison, and he wore number eight. Then after that, because he was left-handed, that's somebody I could identify with. Again, this was pre-Willie Mays. Then after that, this guy named Carl Yaskripski wore number eight, and he played right field also. This was before I wanted to be a center fielder. I played right field for a while at my school. I played right field on the school team when I didn't pitch or play first base. I played right field, but I wore number eight in high school. Interesting. Yeah. That's good stuff. You know, and then you mentioned high school. I know you were equally good football player as a baseball player, and I was looking up some of your stats in your senior year. You threw for 3,400 yards, completed 35 touchdowns, and, oh, by the way, rushed for 1,600 yards. Then you go to play baseball, and this is a stat every high school kid dreams about. Because <laughs> high school plays seven innings. Right. There's 21 potential right. outs. You struck out 
every player all 21. Tell me, tell me about that game. Well, Larry, when you're in high school, you throw hard and kids have respect for you and they don't want to get hit by that ball. So nobody's <laughs> crowding the plate. Well, what I failed to tell everybody, we forgot to look up how many guys that I walked during that time. So oh, interesting. That's something that we need. I need to Google that to find out how many people I walked. But you just playing for the love of the game and you don't realize that you're striking out everybody, you know. And it was one of those feats that I'm very proud of, but just something that I did as a kid. I'm impressed with it now as an old man, but when you're doing it, you're just having so much fun that you don't think about, I just struck out the side yeah. again. And how did you choose baseball over football? Well, through the fact that my father passed my senior year in high school, mm. and uh, I had been recruited to, to go play at Grambling University, one of the black colleges in Louisiana, another all-black school was Southern University. Half of the faculty were Gremlin Knights, the other half were Southern Knights. <laughs> so every day at school, you know, my civics teacher, hey, you got to go be one of those Tigers. Now, Coach Eddie Robinson, you know, he's got all those guys in the NFL. Then my history teacher, hey, you want to be a Jaguar, go to Southern. Baton Rouge is a nice town. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, come on, man. It was one of the biggest decisions I had to make in my life. So once my father passed, my senior year in high school, I sat out with my mom and said, look, my dad worked in a steel mill, and he didn't have no pension. He didn't have no, that was going to be no no uh, compensation for his death. Some kind of way, I talked my mom and said, look, the June draft is coming up. If I get drafted to go play baseball, let me go play baseball. Until this day, Larry, it haunts me because I told my mother the biggest lie I ever told. I told her I would go back and get my degree once and finish college. But I got so consumed with life and what it offered me that I was so busy trying to support my mom and four sisters that I got consumed with baseball and had a little success with that. And I never looked back to, to finishing that school thing. And it's something that I, that's been haunting me for a long time. But... It worked out. The good Lord gave me a chance to be successful as a baseball player. And I helped put my four sisters through school. And my brother, Michael, he's a different story. But I love him just as much as I love those four girls. But it was something that was meant to be. And I thank the good Lord for allowing me to have the chance to play baseball and provide for my mom and, and sister. Absolutely. Yeah. And you ended up being a second-round draft pick by the A's. Yeah. And what does a second-round draft pick back then get for a signing bonus? Hey, man. Well, the guy that was number one pick, he got a Shelby GT and, and 150 oh, grand, I was told. I think I got like 40 grand, which was like, Whoa. now Now we become those Rockefellers, yeah. you know, when you're in Mansfield, Louisiana, and your dad worked in a steel mill, and paper mills was one of the biggest employees of in our town, that and the steel mill that I worked in. So I got like $40,000 out of that whole deal. Not bad for a kid from Mansfield, Louisiana. And again, it allowed me to support my sisters in school. Uh, we did a little renovation on the house, and uh, that was about it. My mom was, she was low maintenance. So, you know, she's just a common lady that wanted to have, want the doors, the locks, and the windows closed, and and her kids to stay out of trouble. And uh, That's good enough. She's threatened me enough that I knew <laughs> to do that. You know, just what's interesting, I, I go back and look at your career. In your first full year in the big leagues is 1971. Uh-huh. You win the MVP and the Cy Young Award. You're 22 years old, and you're 
out of nowhere, the best baseball player on the planet that year. Can you even wrap your head around that at 22? I couldn't, Larry. Now I can. It's not only that, I've gotten a lot better since I retired 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bad man now. But no, Larry, to keep it in perspective, it's a combination of the green as a dollar bill and and the deer in the headlights. So I was both of those. And I just kind of took it in stride. And then you're on the cover of Life, Look, Newsweek Time, SI, Reader's Digest. Unbelievable. And you go like, is this real, man? I don't know. I, I had to pinch myself. I went to Vietnam with Bob Hope. That was pretty cool. I enjoyed that. And what else? So we got to meet go to the White House, got to meet President Nixon. That was pretty cool. And just through the game of baseball, it opened yeah. a lot of doors for me. And all the guys that I played ball with in the 70s on those A's teams and up until the time I retired, uh, those guys are a big part of my life, my baseball family, A's teammates, Giants teammates, and Kansas City Royals teammates. Yeah. I think people who follow baseball, you played for one of the more eccentric and difficult owners of all time in Charlie Finley. He actually tried to sell you a few times. The commissioner had to block it. And, <laughs> and what I, in reading, you mentioned President Nixon, who was a fan of yours, right. big fan, even offered to negotiate for a better contract on your behalf. How did and that work out? he was quoted as saying that I was the lowest paid superstar in America from his lips to my ears. <laughs> and it didn't get me a raise from Finley. Did I ever tell you who described Charlie Finley to you? He was a combination of, of these four men. Al Davis, George Steinbrenner, Ted Turner, uh-huh. and Donald Trump. He was all four oh, of those my guys. Goodness <laughs> sakes. That's difficult. <laughs> On any given day, he would be one of those guys, man. Uh. But I can't speak too ill of the dead, Larry. He gave me a chance to play professional baseball. Yeah. Got to remember that part of it, man. Yeah. And how did it come to be you wore your first name on the back of your uniform. Well, again, you mentioned this eccentric owner of the team, and uh, we had Jim Catfish Hunter. We had John Blumen Odom, who's from Macon, Georgia. We had a guy on our team named Jumbo Jim Nash. This guy was a big old guy from Missouri. He was was about 6'8", and weighed about 245. They call it, he was like a walking 747. Jumbo Jim Nash. So all of a sudden, Mr. Finley gets this wild idea that I should be Vita True Blue. I'm like, what are you talking about? And, you know, I'm sure he had he knew the story of my father passing and me choosing baseball over playing collegiate football. I'm not sure if he knew I was named after my dad. I'm not sure if he realized that I was Vita Blue Jr. And I explained this story to the media, and it became a story in its own self. But I'm Vita Blue Jr. So once he said, you could be Vita True Blue, and that means you're a true blue person. You're a man of your word and your honesty and all this. And I'm like, Mr. Finley. So what happened was it got it hit the, the airwaves, and it was in the paper, on the press, on, on talk and radio and TV. So I said, look, Mr. Finley, why don't you change your name? I actually said that. I, there somewhere I was quoted saying, why don't you change your name? But I, I went to the equipment manager the late Frank Sinchek, I said, look, you think I could get my first name put on my uniform? I actually went to him and did this. And I don't know if he had to call the commissioner's office or uh, Players Association or what. All I know is one day I go in the locker room and there was Vita, V-I-D-A, on my uniform. <laughs> oh, How cool is that? That is cool. And all because of 
Charlie Finley wanted me to change my name. And as a tribute to my dad and to honor my father, I did it to her. I just, I said, let's put Vida, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So that's that. how that happened, man. Then, then finally, a trade did happen to the Giants. So you go to the other side of the bay, and the Giants basically, I mean, I looked at the amount of players, almost like half their team was <laughs> traded just to get you. And you go there, and in your first year there, you become the Sporting News National League Pitcher of the Year. So how was your experience on the other side of the bay? Well, first of all, I got to say that it was a fun time playing in Oakland and just to get traded to the Bay Area city across the bridge, San Francisco. That was perfect. I didn't have to move. I still could afford bridge toll at the time. And the Giants had a great young team at that time. Young Jack Clark, young Terry Whitfield, young Larry Herndon. The pitching staff had Bob Knepper, John the Count the Mouth, Montefusco, <laughs> Ed Halicki, yeah. Jim Barr, Randy Moffitt, Gary Lavelle. They had a solid baseball team. The difference was their minor league careers. I was on two championship teams. My double-A team in Birmingham, we were, I was on a championship team, even though I got called up in September. My team in Des Moines, Iowa, in the American Association, I was on a championship team. I got called up from that team in August to be a part of the September roster expansion. But I had a great time there. We were leading the Western Division all the way across. Jack Clark was doing his thing. Nepper, Montefusco. We had the Dodgers and the Cincinnati Big Red Machine on the ropes, man. We had an eight-game lead going into September. And September, the way the schedule was set up, it was head-to-head within your division. And at that time, Cincinnati, Atlanta was still in the Western Division. Go figure. My geography yeah. tell me that's west of, <laughs> east of the Mississippi River. Anyway, we go from a six-game lead to eight games in the third place because – we had our foot in the door. All we had to do was just take another step, and we could have won our division. But the 7-8 team, that was the year the Dodgers won it. Cincinnati finished second, and we finished third. But uh, it was a good run for me. But unfortunately, those young players didn't believe in themselves, and they hadn't had no experience other than high school or college, I would imagine. But their minor league careers, they played against those same Dodger players in Albuquerque. They didn't beat them then, and they had a psych job on the Giants players and the the roster itself yeah. at that time. I'm like, what are you talking about, it's the Dodgers? The June swoon came about. I'm like, what the hell is this June swoon? For some reason, historically, it was always a bad month for the Giants. Come hell or high water, June was always a bad month statistically for them with that one loss record. But I was determined to change that. But we had a great young team, and we we let it slip away. Yeah. Well, it seems like you definitely chose the right sport. You had over 200 wins, 2,000 strikeouts. You were a starter for both leagues in the All-Star Game, three-time world champion. And as you mentioned, you just recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of your first world championship. So on the baseball side of things, job well done. Thank you very much. (laughs) So we first met 20 years ago in the summer of 2002 at the dedication of one of our many Junior Giants fields we had built down in East Palo Alto. You were working for the Giants Community Fund. And my first impression of you was how kind you were and how much giving of your time you gave to every single person at this dedication. So where did that part of your personality come from? From... It being happening to me live and in person, Larry, uh, when you grow up poor, you need a lot of assistance 
from the neighborhood, from the church, from civic groups that are out there to do good and to support people in their community. Like I said, man, I didn't know we were poor. I didn't. All I know is that we always shared food with our neighbors. My mother lived next door to her brother, one of my five different uncles that I had, which is she had five different brothers, and all of them played sports. But some kind of way, I always noticed that somebody was always helping us and giving us something. And and my mother was always giving something away, and my grandfather and grandmother always giving something away. And I don't know, it just became... Larry, it's the right thing to do. If you can give something back, if give until it hurts, matter of fact. And I have this little thing. I try to give something away most days. A lot of time it's some advice that sometimes they take it or leave it. But <laughs> once I give it, it's out there and I do it yeah. from the goodness of my heart and from my soul. Yeah, and I've noticed ever since you stopped playing, volunteering and helping others has been your full-time gig, really. I mean, and, and it seems to me most of them have been for children's causes. That yeah, seems to be yeah, drawn it's all, there. It's about the kids, man. Yep. And, uh, you know, you grew up, you know the hand that you're dealt. And sometimes kids need a little assistance with something. And again, you know, the best thing I can do is give them advice and let them know that they're thought of and well cared for and loved. Yeah. You know? Well, we're certainly appreciative. I mean, ever since we met you 20 years ago, you've come to every single event we have I've, put on. I've, I've been late once or twice, but I did <laughs> still showed up. <laughs> Well, yeah, you do. You always show up when asked, and I, I, I really, really appreciate that. What you got for me, Larry? You got something you need me to do? Not yet. No. I'll wait till we're yeah, done. Yeah, I still on speed dial. <laughs> so we're sitting here in a classroom at Northern Lights School in Oakland, where you spend most of your days lending your time. Tell us about how you help the kids here. Well, let me tell you how the relationship started. Michelle Lewis, who's a big Muhammad Ali fan, you know, he had the famous quote, impossible is nothing, impossible is nothing. And that's plastered all over the school. So they have a impossible, there's nothing speaker. I don't know how they got my name, my number or what. And I'm like, yeah, I'll come and speak to the class lady. So you talk to the seventh and eighth graders, that's a rag to riches, you know, your life story in a, in a nutshell. So when I come to the, to the uh, school itself, they knew I was coming. Hey, Mr. Blue, how you doing? They hugging. And I'm like, this, this is a setup here. So I speak to the class, and some of her donors were in the classroom and some adults, and we talked. I leave, and, you know, within an hour, I'm like, hey, Miss Michelle, thanks for having me. You mind if I come back to the school one day unannounced? So yeah, help yourself. So what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to sneak up on that school, you know, up on those <laughs> students, and I'm going to catch them and see if they call me Mr. Blue again. So it might have been a month or so later I pull up on the campus, and sure enough, man, they say, hello, Mr. Blue, hello. I'm like, curses, man, they got me. It was legit and genuine, but that's how I got hooked with the school. And once I saw what was going on, and uh, they have a uh, morning circle where all the kids, the whole student body get together. They talk about issues that are pertinent to kindergartners up to eighth grade, which is what the, the uh, student body is made up here at, at a Northern Light School. So some kind of way, Liberty Mutual started shipping this stuff to a golf course with my name on. I'm like, I don't know anybody from Liberty Mutual. I think Jerry Rice gave them my name some kind of way. <laughs> so 
TPC Hayward started getting this stuff. And Miss Michelle calls me and said, what's going on? I'm like, what are you talking about? And we start doing a, the Celebrity Mutual Vita Blue Invitation to Golf Tournament for Northern Lights School. And this would be our, I forgot the number now, considering we had the pandemic going on. But I think it's the ninth year and our eighth tournament. But that's how I got hooked, Larry. I'm actually hooked into being a supporter of Northern Light School. They have some great kids. I've gone to D.C. with them third time. I just recently came back a couple of weeks ago, so I've taken that trip. And it was an opener for me, too, to learn the history of, of D.C. And, and, you know, what our founding fathers did to establish some rules and guidelines for our, for this great nation that we live in. Yeah. And I love the mission here, inclusion, influence, and community. And it's just so evident when you walk on this campus. And I, I imagine you're able to bring back some of your experiences when you were a kid and oh, pass absolutely. it on to these kids, I'm sure. Absolutely. I've told them the story about picking the cotton and buying my first baseball mint. I've shared with them that I grew up in an all-black environment, my school, my church. I don't know if I told you the story about the cemeteries being segregated at the time. That is unbelievable. Yeah. You're dead, man. Yeah. Your and soul is gone somewhere else. And they're but, still dividing it. Yeah. They, I think he even said that the white townsfolk got to be even under the shady trees. Oh, absolutely. The black citizens were out. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, man, it's home. I've got to still honor that. I will always say proudly that I'm from Mansfield, Louisiana. And uh, what can you do? Home is home. Home is home. Yeah. So we had the pleasure of coming back to the school and with the Good Tidings Foundation and building Vita Blue Field here on the campus. The, how field was that? Field of dreams. Field of, Vita yeah, Blue Field, field of, of dreams. dreams. Yeah. <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Yeah. And we've gotten some mileage out of it. Uh, luckily, uh, Bishop O'Dowd girls softball mm-hmm. team has used the field. I'm not sure if that's still in effect, but uh, let me give a shout out to you, Larry, for your support of, of Supporting me, supporting Northern Lights School. Appreciate yeah. it, man. Love you, bro. Well, it's my Thank pleasure. You. Thank you a million times from the school and the students and the faculty. Yeah. And just one other thing. You'd mentioned earlier about touring with Bob Hope and the winners on their USO Christmas tour. And again, we're dating ourselves, but yes. that was a big deal when Bob Hope would round up some celebrities and visit the troops who were stationed sure. and you went to Vietnam. How was that experience? Well, it was an eye-opener for me and to really make a hit home, Larry. I was in the Army Reserves at that time, so that could have been me. At the time, they weren't activating reserve units at the time, but now that's in vogue to activate groups of uh, reservists. Depends on what type of unit you're in. I was in a medical group. I worked at the 352nd Back Hospital at the Oakland Army Base, and it was a opener for me, man. I could have been one of those guys. Yeah. But uh, I got to do a skit with Bob Hope. And the year before, Johnny Bench was on the tour because he was the MVP of the National League, I think, in 1970 or 71. But in our little skit in front of the troops, Bob says, Vita, welcome to the thing. The, you know, the troops, they love you. Da, da, da. Last year, we had Johnny Bench on our show, Vita. And guess what? What's that, Bob? He was a big hit with the women. And I'm like, no way. Records were made to be broken, so I'm going to be a bigger <laughs> hit. That was part of my little skit, man. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, you know, again, 
First, I want to thank you for all you've done for Good Tidings. And one thing I've always noticed, too, when I, I watch you with other people is you always say yes. You're never, ever are trying to escape helping someone. We were honored a year ago, like you mentioned, to award you the Nate Thurman Award, which That's is presented. That's cool, man. That is cool. So I thank you for your friendship, your devotion to the kids of the Good Tidings Foundation. You are a Hall of Fame person, and hopefully Cooperstown will come calling for you as they should. One of these days, Larry. If it doesn't, I'm a Hall of Famer here at Northern Light School and with good tidings. You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.